Pulled up to the scene in a 65 Bentley, dripped in Brioni, China doll with me, looking like a supermodel, oh what a feeling, 25 years old, 25 million, today's the audition for the Godfather part, my life's already a movie so when do I start, I walk up in Patsy's East 119th Street, Fat Tony Salerno gets a kiss on the cheek, I know my way around, not my first time here, been doing overnight cigarette loans for 10 years, I say hello to Danny Pagano and Tough Tony, Nicky Domino gives me a nod, they all know me, they ask why I'm there so early, I say the part, they say what part, I say the movie, why not, I don't look like Carlo, they all begin laughing, 3pm ready for the lights, cameras, action, Gianni getting your song. Welcome to the Hollywood Godfather podcast, currently Gianni is travelling around on his nationwide tour, so we thought why not bring you some of the best content from the last couple of years for you to enjoy this week. I'm Julia Schweitzer, your host of our first ever The Best of the Hollywood Godfather. So, let's get started. Speak softly loud and hold me warm against your heart. I hear your words, the tender trembling. Starting us off, we have a segment from one of our highest rating shows. From season 11, episode 219, an interview with Michael Moy, former Chinese gang member. How does one get involved in this? At what age? Uh, how, does, how does the recruitment go? How do you get involved in it? T tell us your story about how it all started, Mike. Well, let me um, tell you about how the gangs operate from the 1970s. I'm going to focus on the 70s into the mid 90s because uh, that was the time when i was out in the streets so how do they operate they usually have a uh, what you call a daima to go out and do the recruiting and a lot of times they usually recruit the kids who are from the ages of like 13 to 16 because they want to recruit the uh minors so they can do the dirty work for the gang well how do they know who to approach well i guess uh to be a daima you have to have a sense of um you, you, like a people's person, you you have a knack for spotting out, you know, picking out the people who are um, who are vulnerable, the, the ones who are being bullied, and the ones who need protection. So they, you know, they feel you out before they um they get too close to you. Okay, explain to uh, those of our listeners who don't know what is a daima. A daima is sort of like um, a rank above the street soldier. So yeah, he. He basically leads a, a crew of people. So it's sort of like a crew leader, so to speak. Right. Okay. So we have the Italian mafia too. Yeah, it's like the Italian mob. You're right. So, Mike, uh, uh, why do you think you were approached? Uh, well, how I was, old were you? For one? How old were you? I was 16 years old when I was approached uh, by Daima. So I was 16 years old when I was approached by Daima. And uh, why was I approached? Because uh, I guess uh, basically um, I was hanging around the pool hall with a, uh, a friend of mine who was white. And, you know, we were like uh, we were like study partners. So a lot of times after school, when we finished you know, studying at the library, we would go to a uh, pool hall and play video games there. So um he he see me as a familiar face and all the time. 
And then uh, one day, you know, when I was walking to the pool hall alone, and this time without my friend, uh, that's when he approached me. And then uh, he started talking to me, and then we hit it off. Uh, what was the original entree? He, I'm sure he did come up to say, hey, you want to be in a gang, kid? Oh, no, 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 no. Not, it wasn't like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, he asked me if I was heading over to the pool hall because he sees me in the pool hall all the time playing video games. Yeah, and, um, yeah I'm heading that way. And then you know, we started walking together. And then after a while, you know, he got to know me, know my personality, my character. And then that's when uh, he asked me uh, to join the gang. How long do you think that took? He was, he was trying to gain your confidence. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. So how long do you think that took? Uh, it took about, I would say like, uh, almost, we spent time with each other almost every day after that, you know, because, you know, the, after school hours, I would go to the pool hall. Okay. Uh, for how long? I mean, I would say about a month, about a month. Maybe okay. Maybe so how, how does he cop the question? What does he say? What, what would he say to attract you into that lifestyle? Well, it's, uh, what he said that really attracted me was, um, yo, we're here to protect each other. So the protection that he offered, you know, attracted me, you know, basically he's telling me that, you know, we're, we're, we're a crew and we hang out with each other and we protect each other basically. And nobody's going to mess with us. Okay. So at that time, I didn't even know what gang he was in and I didn't even question it, you know, because it wasn't, I felt it wasn't the right time. I didn't, I felt it wasn't the right time and I didn't know him well enough to question what gang he was in at that time. So I didn't question. So eventually I got to meet the other members of the gang. And then once I got closer to them, that's uh, when he revealed to me what gang uh, he was in. But that was later on. It wasn't right away. That was, we're talking about like at least a couple of months down the road. And what gang was that? Uh, one of the seven major gangs in Chinatown, uh, which I'm going to reveal at a later date. If you watch my uh, YouTube channel, Chinatown Gang Histories on YouTube, yeah. I mean, if you watch my uh, YouTube channel, yeah. Chinatown Gang Stories, yeah. uh, you, you probably get a hint about what gang I was uh, affiliated with. But uh, at that time, there were seven major gangs in Chinatown. And this, and this was one of them. And this was one of them. That was a very interesting show. Let's keep things moving along though. Johnny has a lot of celebrity friends, as we all know, and here is one of them now. Coming up next, here is a clip from Season 6, Episode 111, an interview with actor, writer, and producer, Chaz Palminteri. In all the, all the writings that you've done, I mean, obviously, Bronxdale, I mean, yeah. that, that, I mean, whoever thought when you wrote that, that look at that legacy, what's that been for you? Well, that's been, you know, uh, I wrote it, <laughs> I wrote that 30 years ago, and I wrote it after I got fired. I was working, I ran out of money, I was guest starring on some shows, then I finally I ran out of that money, and I started working as a bouncer, as a doorman, because I used to box, you know, and I said, all right, I can handle myself, let me get a job doing this, working, and I worked at a door in this club called uh, 2020 in Beverly Hills. Oh, wow, over there. Yeah, you remember, I worked there, I was in L.A., and I worked there, and uh, all of a sudden, one night, I was there for three months. I was supplementing my acting, and I was working there for. I was working there, and all of a sudden, this one guy comes over to me, Johnny, and he goes, and he goes, "Let me in right away." And he was really nasty to me. And I said, "I said, excuse me, wait a minute, are you on the list?" He goes, 
He goes, my, I'm not on the list. He goes, I, he goes, don't you know who I am? And when a guy says that to me, I always say, yeah, you're the guy who's not getting in tonight. That's <laughs> the real asshole, you know? Right, I and love it. Finally, I wouldn't let him in. And then uh, he made such a fuss that the owner came out. He was yelling. The owner came out, and who was it? It was Swifty Lazar. Oh, my God. Man. Swifty Lazar was the biggest agent in the world. I know. know he had his party every year, his Oscar yeah, party. And that was his party, and I wasn't letting him in. Oh, and my God. Oh, that's funny. Okay? And then he said, you'll be fired in 15 minutes. And you know what? I got fired in 15 minutes, just like he said. Oh, no, so he's, he's that. He's like that. I, I, I have a similar story. I keep my boat in Spain, and I, I leave it at the Carlton Hotel all the time. And they, they rent it out. They get me like 30000 a week for it. And uh, I'm sitting there, and, and in small print, I'm allowed to board my boat if I'm there. Not to, you know, just to board it. It's my boat. And my crew runs it. And you'll love this story, Jess. <laughs> so I get on the boat, and there is Harvey Weinstein. Oh. And he comes over to me, and he says, uh, you're Johnny Russo. I said, yeah. He said, well, you're not on my list. I said, I know that. He said, well, get off my boat. I said, what'd you just say? He says, get off my boat. I said, no, I'm supposed to say that. He said, what do you mean? I said, this is my boat. Now get off my boat. So he called the, the, the captain over, and the captain said, I'm sorry, Mr. Russo wants you off his boat. We threw him off, and he paid 18000 for the party. Uh, do I love that story? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, see, yours worked out a lot better than mine. I got fired, and I went home and I wrote. Uh, I started writing about Bronx Tale. That's how it all happened. But that's work. That's perfect. Well, I don't even know where twenty twenty was. I thought I knew every club in Beverly Hills. It was in the Beverly Center. No, not the Beverly Center. It was in. Yes. No. I'm sorry. It was in the Beverly Center, but right off uh, Century City Boulevard. Oh wow! I, I yeah. never. What year was that? 1986. Oh, that's why, I was I was yeah. away. I went I went I left the country for a while. 86. Yeah. You can't say I was away. That doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound. Good. <laughs> no, that's true. I wasn't when in. My car friends go. I was away. I go. Oh, okay. No, I was in, not in Carson. No, you know what it is? I I went and well, Pat, you know, wrote the book. I went away a lot of times on vacation really on a vacation, not in jail, because if I would have stayed, I would have been in jail. I wait right. for the subpoenas to go away. Yeah. But anyway, well, it's crazy. I understand that. But yeah. the Bronx Tale, I mean, what a, I mean, that. that yeah. it, it's the first time anything ever went from a one-man show to a, a major movie to a Broadway musical. And the same guy who wrote it and started all three. So it was pretty uh, crazy. Wow. That guy is amazing. On to the next clip. This one had a lot of you guys writing into us about. So up next is an interview with Elvis's cousin, singer Donna Presley, from season 11, episode 210. I would, I mean, you grew up with this guy. You knew him. I'm talking about Elvis, obviously, to our audience. You knew me before anybody, he was a star or anything else. And I met him early on. I met him actually with uh, Frank Sinatra, mm -hmm. and uh, a good friend of mine uh, invited me down to uh, the Fountain Blue, 1961, to do the NBC special with Sinatra hosting, Welcome right. Elvis Back. Mm -hmm. And that was my first, I knew of him, obviously, but to meet the guy, he's such a regular guy. 
Yes, he, he was. Super nice guy, just down to earth and sweet and kind and such a gentleman. Great guy. Now, did you know him growing up as a, as a, as a, a cousin? You know, you had holidays with him and all that? Yes, we did. Uh, from the time I was 10 years old, I spent all my summers in Graceland. Oh, wow. Then, yeah, yeah. And then when I was about 14, 15 years old, Elvis called me and my mom and my dad into uh, the dining room. And uh, he said, uh, Aunt Nash, Uncle Earl, we really love having Donnie, which is what he called me because he had a nickname for everybody. Uh, we really love having Donnie here. And, uh, you know, I'm on the road a lot. And it be, means so much to Dodger, our grandmother, uh, if she lived here. So, you know, just uh, we want her to move in. You can see her whenever you want. Come visit her. I'll buy her a car. I'll send her to school when she graduates from high school. I'll get her into whatever she wants to get into. And uh, I'm sitting there going, yes, 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 you know, in my mind. <laughs> and uh, my mom goes, uh, no. <laughs> and uh, he said, but Aunt Nash, I, you know, I'll take care of her. She said, honey, I know you take care of her. I know you love her and everything will be fine. But she's my little girl and she's going home with me. So I went home. But when I was 17, Elvis bought the Circle G Ranch. And he asked my dad to go to work for him on the Circle G. And so, you know, overseeing both properties. So we lived on the Circle G for two years until Elvis decided to sell it. And then he moved us onto the grounds of Graceland. And I lived there until I moved out on my own. And then um, my mom and dad lived there until they opened the house to the public in 1982. Wow. So at 10, I mean, that's interesting. So you met him as a star. Oh, yes. He had been a star since I was four years old. Oh, okay. So that's, I, I thought you had some little tidbits of, of him falling off his bike or something. And, or wedding <laughs> well, his actually, my mom school. wrote a book about that. <laughs> so I do, yes. Well, so I, you must have been so affected by him because I knew, I mean, I was already, he, he did me a big favor. Most people don't know that. And, really? Oh, yeah. When they, they were, Kirk Corwin's a friend of mine, and mm -hmm. we had mutual friends that, New Elvis, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm thinking I'm talking about the July of 69 mm -hmm. when they opened the Hilton Hotel. Yes. And he was following Streisand in. Streisand did two weeks. And that's when they were doing two shows a night. Right. And then Elvis was coming in. Mm -hmm. And nobody realized prior to everything, you know, that I met him down in, you know, the Fountain Blue. And he remembered me, which I was shocked. And but the the thing that I was just opened a club called Tiffany's mm -hmm. at at the Tropicana Hotel. Yes. So I said, Elvis, if I send a car for you, a bunch of our friends, some you knew, like Dr. Elias Ghanem and them, were all coming yeah. over. Right. And he was going to be there every, you know, and it was great for him because he liked going places where he had some security, and mm -hmm. and I was open till six in the morning, so you you could wander over anyone. <laughs> Anytime he wanted, we sent a car, but I pronounced to him, and it's the first time I think anybody's hearing this, and I think it's funny that I'm telling his cousin, as soon as he got there, my PBX operators got on the phone, this was the Tropicana Hotel, telling all the cabs, Ace Cab, you won't believe it was at Tiffany's Elvis. <laughs> the place was, we had lines outside until six in the morning, trying to get in. But I, you know, we treated him like gold. We didn't exploit him in any way other than saying he was there. Yeah. 
<laughs> and we had security, the hotel security, actually, mm -hmm. that guarded him off. And he loved coming there. And, uh, awesome. and I surprised him one night, which he couldn't figure out how he did it. You know, he loved those peanut butter and banana sandwiches. Yes, you did. <laughs> I thought it was the, the I, I went with him one night. We flew up to uh -huh. San Francisco. He wanted to go to that one diner he used to go to. Uh -huh. And that's how I met the guy. And a friend of mine who, who arranged for me to get them all mm -hmm. down in the afternoon on a flight. And we served them that night <laughs> in the I club. Like <laughs> I didn't like them at all. I mean, I like peanut butter. But I mean, it's, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's so filling. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know, but uh, he loved them. But yes, we, we, served, we served them one night as a special. Oh. Everybody went crazy. And they were all, you know. That was before cell phones. Can imagine if it was cell phones? Everybody be in them and posting them all over the world. Right. Now, how about we check in with our good friend, Judge Jeannie Pirro? Here's a clip from season 10, episode 184. Here's my background. I've been a prosecutor, a judge, and a DA for over three decades. I ran for office five times. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I have my pound of flesh that I gave in, in public. Uh, and I fought for the underdog. I fought for strong laws. I fought to make sure that criminals were accountable and responsible. And suddenly we find ourselves in, a, in an America where the words, just the words, law and order are offensive to people. Uh, and I first remember that happening when Donald Trump mentioned it in 2016. He said law and order and people were offended by it. And that's when I realized there was something going on in this country. But let me just fast forward to uh, Highland Park. This little dirtbag, whose name doesn't deserve to be repeated, uh, had all of the all of the identification marks that we look for in terms of these mass shooters. Uh, and I, I am I love police. I love cops. When I was a DA, I had fifty of them who worked in the DA's office for me. And I mean, I, I worked with FBI, state, local, all of them. Uh, I have tremendous respect for them. But when this guy, yesterday, this guy, Samino, comes out, and he's a deputy sheriff, I think. He comes out and he says, well, you know, there was no basis uh, for us to do anything because of the red flag, with the red flag laws. And I'm saying to myself, wait a minute. Well, that's the purpose. Uh, yeah, that is a purpose. In 2019, this little dirtbag said he wanted to kill everyone in his family. All right. He was known to have attempted suicide. So they find out when the parents call police and all of the indicators are there. The neighbors say police cars were there frequently. So we've got police responses frequently within the last couple of years. And when he threatened to kill everyone in his family, they go in, they take out 16 knives, one sword, one dagger, and they leave. Do they take this kid for any kind of analysis or evaluation? Do they even bother to look at social media? What do they do? They do nothing. And in the end, they go back and now they look at it and they say, holy shit. What we did was we ignored all the telltale signs and they say, well, there was nothing we could have done. No one was willing to sign a complaint. That's nonsense. And I'll tell you why. The police had probable cause. As far as they knew, he had threatened to kill the parents and called. You make the arrest. 
you do an analysis of this kid, whether or not he's a danger to others or a danger to himself. You already know he tried to kill himself, so he is a danger to himself. And you take him in, and whatever happens, happens. But at least you've got some record on it. And instead they went, oh, okay, mom and dad won't file a, uh, sign a complaint. Well, of course mom and dad aren't going to sign a complaint. I started the first domestic violence unit in the nation in 1978, and I'm no spring chicken. And I started this when no one was talking about battered women and abused children. And so this was something I fought for for the last, what, 40 years? And you know they're not going to sign the complaint. It's their child. So you go in on behalf of the people of the state of Illinois. Now, let's just put that red flag piece alone. His social media is clear. He doesn't get along with anyone. He's a loner. And he's an individual who has talked about shooting. You go into all of his social media. He's got stick figures with blood and everything else. So then you say to yourself, well, Janine, is that enough? Stick figures are not enough. <laughs> First Amendment is protected, right? It's free speech. You can't go in and arrest them. But when you put it all together, they could have, when they got the knives, they could have done something. They could have done something with his family. Now we find out he had a dysfunctional family. His parents never picked him up for sports after school. The parents oh. either forgot about him or they had to call the parents and say, your kids are here, come and get them. And they didn't do it. So what we've got now is this, he fits the profile. He's male, he's 18, 19, 22, it's all the same age. He got a gun legally. Okay, he gets the gun legally. So what do we do now? Stop everyone from getting a gun? No, we're not gonna stop people from getting a gun because unlike abortion, the gun is explicit in the second amendment. We have the right to bear arms. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure. That means not to have it in the shower. That means to bear it, to carry it out of the house. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. We are pleased to announce the publication of a new book series from Gianni Russo and Patrick Piccarelli entitled The Sixth Family. When the alleged daughter of Marilyn Monroe asks for help, Gianni Russo becomes entangled in a web of lies and violence in the search for the late actress's diary. Soon, he is enmeshed in a mystery that involves a presidential candidate, a disgruntled mafia copo, a retired NYPD detective, and the past of mafia boss Frank Costello. Russo must race against the clock to stop a hostile reorganization of the American Mafia while trying to stay one step ahead of a faceless killer. While listening to this book, skillfully read by Gianni himself, the listener will have to determine what is true and what is fiction. Or as Gianni says before this epic story begins, this book is a work of fiction, except for the parts that are true. Look out for the second installment of this exciting new series coming in 2023. The Sixth Family. Book One is available now on Amazon.com. And we're back. Now, let's continue with the best of the Hollywood Godfather. Now, everyone loves a musician and his iconic classics are known well around the world. Here's a clip from season six episode 118, an interview with the legendary Frankie Valli, still walking like a man. 
the big thing was to work in places like the Copa. Oh, I know. You yep. know, you, once you had worked in the Copa, you'd made it. That's it. Everybody would say, hey, you worked the Copa, you, you made. Yeah. That's so funny because, you know, I didn't realize that I, I went to work for Costello. I was like 13, 13 and a half. I didn't know, you know, how important it was until I was there all the time. And seeing the acts, you know, doing sound checks in the afternoon. I saw Sinatra doing a sound check after two years of listening to him on the radio. Once I knew I shared his birthday, December 12th. And he was my idol and I never met the guy. But He uh, was my idol too and I never thought in my life that I would ever meet him. And, and I, I met him through an unusual circumstance. His mom... I did a lot of charity work. Oh, Dolly. Yeah. And they, they had a, a an event that that a, a Catholic or, organization was running for the blind. And Jimmy Rosselli was the star of the show. <laughs> and they were fighting over the size of the orchestra. And he wanted a bigger than 20-piece orchestra. So he walked away from it. And I had a manager at the time, but you knew Ken Roberts. Oh, yeah, Kenny Roberts, my God. Well, Ken knew Dolly well. He said, listen, he said, uh, I managed this group the four seasons. He said, they'll do it for nothing. And we did it for nothing. And Frank heard about it and sent for me. At first, I had no idea what he wanted to see me about. Yeah, hello. <laughs> That could be dangerous when he sends for you. <laughs> he told Julie to give me a call, and Julie said, I said, well, what does he want? What does he want from me? He said, uh, he, he wants to see you, that's all. And that's how I, I met him and became friends with him and hung out with him and all of that. Oh, that's great. The fact that I was there for his mom when she needed help. Now, she was a character and a half. His mother was his driving force early on. Most people don't even know that. Oh, I know. But, uh, and obviously you went to Jilly's on 52nd Street. That was like... Yeah, the, I went to Jilly's every night that I wasn't working. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, it's, it's when, when you think about what you and I've experienced just by living in, not, not, not that I've had the same accolades you did, but I was around it all these years. And uh, you, you see, like my kids and my grandchildren today, I wonder what, what, what's their excitement? What, what, what do they have, those podcasts, when POMCAD, whatever they call those things in their hands? That's, that's their excitement. I don't know what they, what they do. Well, there's absolutely nothing like live performance oh, oh of my yesterday God. Yep. Uh, in comparison to today. Everything today is a production. You got 9,000 dancers and <laughs> you got fireworks. Oh, yeah. Special effects. You got everything going on. Uh, you know, I miss the days when it was... Just pure talent, a, man. A singer and a comedian. Yeah. That was the show. That it was, was it. Bells and whistles. Yeah. In the Copa, you couldn't put dancers in there. <laughs> that stage was so small. Forget about it. Well, the stage was a part of the floor. I know. 
it was floor level. There was no step up or anything. I know. And not only that, and it worked for them because as certain people came in, they added tables to the stage. <laughs> and you right. have. And, <laughs> there was hardly a little spot on stage for you to stand in. Yeah. That's no, funny, man. Great, uh, great experiences, though. I mean, I've seen you on probably almost every stage you performed on, especially in Vegas days. My God. And then when you went, you went on your own. I mean, that was insane. But uh, and now the, the the Broadway play. I mean, you you've touched every part of the industry, acting, everything. Now, I mean, you I mean, you probably have to look back and say, when you were singing on the street corners, do up, and now look where you are. My God, God bless. Well, there was a choice. As I was growing up, I, I always wanted to do acting. And I also wanted to be a singer. And I found that it was a lot easier to make a living even when, until you made it or if you never made it, as a singer. So I chose to spend most of my time being a singer because I didn't need anybody to get me a job. It was up oh, to yeah, me. Hello. <laughs> All those little saloons in New Jersey and New York, and you could you could work thirty or forty weeks a year. Yeah, and you, actually, you had a you you had to hope that they wanted to use you in the picture, and oh, it's when, the most insecure business in the world. Yeah, I can't, I tell my kids next, that. Right, and when the next part would come. Yeah. It's it's amazing. I mean, uh, the experiences, as you say, I mean, your career, fortunately, it, it, it happened and never stopped, and you kept driving it. But like you say, these actors, they'll they'll do two or three movies, and they don't work again because somebody don't like them or they said something wrong to somebody. It's crazy. Absolutely incredible. What a life. <laughs> well, what do we have next, you may ask? We had a lot of buzz on this next clip, so enjoy a selection from season 11, episode 211, entitled Uncle Frank's Place. I, I just did at a dinner, he knows, uh, Pat knows I was, I went to uh, Sicily for the 50th anniversary of The Godfather. And um, the gentleman who hosted it rented the compound that where Pacino was living with Albalonia. Oh, wow. Oh, it was really interesting. But was more interesting, a guy showed up around 11 o'clock at night with an entourage, and it was Ugo Buffa's son. They knew I was there, and he came to pay his respects. The whole <laughs> the party went silent. I'm talking about 20-something people. <laughs> I, he must have a, a living legend in Sicily. We were in Sicily. And to see these guys show up was like... My date almost fainted because this guy. I mean, you know, they have to have that look. There's certain guys that have that look, and you look in their eyes, and you don't see anything. It's yeah, like scary guy. But anyway, did, you, so did you go to his uh, uh, the apartment building where he lived in New York, Casey? At all? I tried to get in uh, to see Velotti, and uh, but the the doorman wasn't having it. <laughs> I've had a a few friends that that also uh, there's a, a gentleman Mike Mafucci that helps me with the um, with uh, Frank's place too, and he actually lives in New York, 
and he's he's tried to go there and take a look inside too but they they wouldn't let him in i i get the feeling you know we're not the only ones who have asked it sounded like that he gets asked a lot about this. well funny you should bring that up uh after john lennon got killed i was guarding yoko ono with a b- bunch of other cops new york city oh, cops wow uh yeah they john and yoko liked new york city cops in fact uh when the city wouldn't give us uh, bullet resistant vests i don't like to use the term bulletproof because they're not but anyway uh the, the city said oh it isn't in our budget it, you know we can't afford it uh they volunteered to get vests for every cop on the job to forty-eight thousand cops that comes to a few dollars that's amazing embarrassed the city so much that they wound up uh springing for the vests but anyway uh yoko lived across the street uh in the uh dakota yeah which is where rosemary's baby was filmed so we were on the and it's directly across the street uh, uh on the same quarter in fact just the opposite corner right and uh uh you know we'd be li- leaving the building all the time and everybody knew who we were so one day i decided to go to the to, to frank's building and ask to see if i could see the lobby what i wanted to see was the elevator <laughs> uh because that's where he was shot uh and uh yeah they, they they let us in because you know we, we had the entree we had, we had the shields you know yeah you, uh, different situation. You, know, you could basically go anywhere uh so mm-hmm. it, it was fascinating i saw the elevator uh yeah. i never told you about this johnny just no. when uh, Casey started talking about it it just reminded me and we went yeah. in there uh looked at the elevator and i'm thinking to myself there was no way he could miss none exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> i said you know if you're looking to kill someone like you know, allegedly it was an attempted hit, yeah. uh, and Frank uh, uh, zigged and zagged, and he almost dodged a bullet. But if you're looking to kill somebody, I mean, it, it, it's an elevator; it's like a closet. How do you miss somebody? What's the story behind that? Well, I'm, I'm glad that they did. I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Frank. Otherwise, there wouldn't be as much stuff to to post. But um, you know, I've heard a lot of different, um, pretty much every like legend out there about Costello I've heard uh, like five different versions of them at this point you know from different people and stuff and and I know there's a lot of uh a lot of folks out there that say that he missed by design I don't know that seems like that would be a pretty difficult shot for somebody to make well, to, yeah. you know to graze somebody's head like that but yeah but uh, chin, chin chin was a smart kid uh, I can tell you that's the shooter yeah yeah Chinjiganti. But the um the funniest thing, two weeks after that, and after he didn't recognize and then you know all of that with the police, they all had dinner together. That's what I've heard, yeah. <laughs> Just you know, that's you know, we ask like why you're you know, I get interested in this. It's like stories like that. That you just yeah. you know they're unbelievable. Well, he wanted to step down, but most people don't realize he was already working with Maya Lansky, working with Tony um uh, Tony Accardo in Chicago, and they were moving on. And he he basically when Vito came out, it, he was jealous of because he was so well liked and respected. Vito never had that. Vito Genovese. Yeah, Vito. Gen- oh, I'm sorry, Vito yeah. Genovese. And uh, so he was happy to give the family back. So I don't know. Who, who orchestrated this and why, but it all worked out perfectly for everybody. And that was it. Yeah. You know, I, uh, cause that's the way I've under, always kind of understood it too, from what I've kind of gathered is that, you know, Frank was, was really, he was wanting to get out of that whole thing at that point. I mean, he'd been through so much at that point, everybody knew who he was, you know, and, uh, so and he amassed a major fortune. 
You yeah. already had over 45 million. Yeah, I mean, he was one of those guys that um, you know, he's doing fine on his own. Oh, know? yeah. I you know, some um some of those guys, I think, you know, they need the mob to be successful. But Frank's one of those guys. I think that they needed Frank more than he needed them, you know, in a way. Because, you know, he he was, you know, perfectly capable of, of just being successful. Oh, legitimate business, definitely, yeah. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm reaping the harvest of it yet. This is, like I said, when he, when he died, I was called to the lawyer's office. I've been, been there so many times bringing envelopes. And um, he left me six units in here. He owns this building. It's amazing. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> and one of the apartments came with 47 phones. <laughs> yeah. Mine. <laughs> My bedroom had 12, 12 riders constantly on the wire service. Wow. Yeah. Do you still use one of his phone numbers, right, Gianni? I still have it. Yeah. Yeah. Plaza 3. Nobody has that number. That's yeah. great. 817-board. You know, that, that whole shooting thing goes to show the difference between what the mafia used to be compared to what it is now. I mean, two weeks after the shooting, the victim and the shooter get together at a dinner and the shooter thanks the victim for not turning him in. But that's the way business was conducted in those days. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just, yeah, it's it's mind-blowing to, you know, somebody like me, just that whole life and all that stuff. So, I yeah, it's fascinating. Well, it gives it gives new meaning and an opportunity from a film that I was in. It's nothing personal, Michael. It's just business. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's dive right into our next clip then. Here's Season 9, Episode 167, an interview with Chris Mad Dog Russo and another Russo in the news. So tell me about Gianni's appearance on his show. I heard he made a splash. Hey, he was tremendous. Now, what we did was, you know, I knew it was the 50th anniversary of The Godfather. And who doesn't love The Godfather, the movie? I had, of course, read the book, had seen the movie, you know, plenty of times. I've seen it since, by the way, just to get a little feel again. <laughs> Uh, since Johnny was uh, appearance. And I spoke to my producer and I said, you know what? We need to get somebody on here. You're not getting De Niro, you're not getting Pacino, you're not getting, you know, I understand, you know, you got to have some limitations. And I said, how about, how about Carlo? Now, I didn't know Johnny at the time. I said, how about Carlo? And Eddie looked all the information up, tracked uh, Johnny down. And next thing you know, um, we set up a date. We put an, uh, the, we put the uh, Zoom together. We did it at, um, I believe we did it at, we may have done it at three. I think we did it at three. We led the show with it. The day of the, it was March 24th, because that was the 50th anniversary of the, of the movie being released. So we did it at three o'clock, played it. He stayed on to 4.15, and we did an interview, you know, basically talking about his life, the movie, his, how he got the part, all those, all the things that you, Marilyn Monroe, all the things that you can think of that would be interesting. And people, you know, they love that stuff. You know, Johnny's life is an incredible life, uh, negatively and positively, and they love that stuff. And so, you have, a lot of, you have a lot of people calling in. Yes, sir. A lot of people responded to that. Uh, you know, you have what you have, and you have something like that on Sirius. You first have you have the people, the core audience, my fans listen, and my fans love that stuff. Who doesn't love The Godfather, a fifty-year-old guy? I mean, he loves that. Secondly. Word of mouth. Hey, you know what, Louis? Uh, you got to hear what Russo did today. And next thing you know, they call me. How can I get a copy of it? How do I hear that? 
So we put it up on demand. We put it on SoundCloud. We put a little clip on it on the Mad Dog Unleashed Twitter page. And all of a sudden, it swells. And so that's what we did with Johnny. That's why Johnny leaving his apartment one day has the doorman say, hey, I heard John Russo. He may have not heard the whole interview. He may have heard a snippet of it. And, you know, he may have heard a little three-minute clip. He may have heard, you know, a highlight. Because who's sitting there listening to, you know, it's radio. They come and go, they in and out with the radio. They're out of the car, into the car, out of the car, into the car. They may not listen to the whole hour and 15 minutes. So that is what we did with John. And John, you know, if we put that out there for a week. So if you want, if you're a Christopher Russo fan and you heard that he put a guy like Johnny on and he was on for an hour and 15 minutes and you like, and you like Russo, and I do a lot of these kind of interviews anyway, these kind of off the sports deal. You're going to find that and you're going to get a kick out of it because he was so good on the air. Thank you. I can interview. I'm a good interviewer. But unless the subject matter knows how to answer the questions properly and is engaging, the interview goes nowhere. I could have Serena Williams on. If she's not into it, it's a dope. I nothing I can do. I can try to get the best responses. But the person I'm asking the questions to has to be willing to expound express themselves, enjoy yep. being on. Well, Johnny okay. does, that's why it was a good spot. Now, this next show was very controversial and actually led to a change in the series. Here is a clip from Season 8, Episode 149, Gianni Russo meets Gianni Russo, an interview with the actor who plays Gianni in the offer. Okay, so... Uh... Similar story as Gianni, except uh, put it in Los Angeles. I basically grew up on the streets. My father wanted to be an actor, and my father was always, he was basically a street guy. So ever since I was a kid, I had so many different odd jobs. I've always been a hard worker. And uh, my father, as a kid, uh, used to sell sheepskins and cowhides on the corner. So if I wanted a skateboard, if I wanted a jacket, since I was five years old, I used to work the corners. And I learned how to size people up on the corners since I was a kid. And I got to grow up in LA on the streets and uh, skateboarding, surfing, having fun. And it was like basically the California story of Gianni Russo, except I haven't killed anybody yet, (laughs) yet. Uh, but my favorite movies growing up was The Godfather, Goodfellas, uh, you know, all the Scorsese films, Casino. And everybody always asked me if I was Italian or if I was from the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And I never was. And I meet people all the time and like, dude, you have an East Coast mentality. Now, my wife is Italian. Uh, my wife is from Staten Island. Oh, my God. Uh, my son's name is Gianni. Go figure. Oh, Are you kidding? So, you didn't tell me that. I love it. Thank yes, you. I did tell you that. I said, guess my son's name. Oh, I wow. did tell you that, Gianni. And you said, and you and you nailed it. You go, Gianni. And I go, of course. So That's my wild. son's name is Gianni Leon Williams. Um, and uh, I guess I always wanted to be Italian. Now, I'm Irish, Welsh, German, and Russian Jewish. But I've always slicked back my hair since I was a kid. I always loved to work hard. I wear nice suits. This is Tom Ford right here. So when we're talking about $10,000 suits, 
I always love nice cars. And I got to watch Gianni Russo of who he was on Vlad TV a few years ago. And I heard the story. And then I started watching all of his interviews for fun because I thought they were so entertaining. I'm like, who is this guy? Brando, Marilyn Monroe, the Godfather, you know, working for the mob, Vegas. And I was like, holy shit. So all of a sudden, I used to, for a small window, I, I was an actor for about seven years. I made a living at it. And I did a bunch of teen films and I was on TV shows. And then I got into real estate. I was like, I need to make some real money. Just at the time, I was like, I don't think I'm going to be the next Brad Pitt or Leo DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. So I got into real estate and I ended up flourishing. I now develop, I, you know, I've sold some of the biggest properties in Los Angeles. I own my own firm. I have several people that work for me. And, uh, and, and, and but I always dabbled. I've been on entourage because I sold the entourage executive producers homes and I've worked with so many people and this cast director, John Paps there who knew me was like, I'm casting this character and it's coming to mind that I think you should play this guy. Could you do it? He sends me an email and I barely ever check my emails. I have people that do that for me. I hate emails. I'm still old school. I like to talk and text. And I said, no problem. Easy. And then they sent me the sides. I was like, shit, now I got to really do this. And now you don't audition. You have to go put yourself on tape kind of like Gianni Russo did for the godfather when he delivered it to al ruddy i sent it in and with the day they said you got the part and they were trying to cast the part for several months because they couldn't find okay the guy that could nail dressing looking good and having that extra sophistication and style and swag like our man the hollywood godfather well you got more than i have going on i'll tell you that. <laughs> i'm impressed that's fabulous thank you what a compliment that, you, yeah, that you're playing me. We're going to have some fun with this when this comes out, though. That I yeah. guarantee you. I'm, I'm curious to see. How the well, I'll just tell you, it's it's three episodes. It's really about Al Ruddy. No kidding. The whole the, thing is about Al yeah, Ruddy. It's, yeah, it's about the producer, the making on, and everything that had to go on with making The Godfather, with the mob, with the... Uh, you know, all the producers and trying to get the actors and all the characters. So it's really about him. I'm only in three episodes. I have about six scenes, but okay. they're really fun scenes. It's one of them is the infamous uh, James Conn scene. And the other is when I first get to, uh, I go on the Paramount uh, lot and I meet Al Ruddy and I give him the tape and uh, how Al Ruddy hires me. And uh, it, it, listen, it's a fun part. It's not huge. But like they say, there's no huge parts in uh, in Hollywood. But the thing, what I know about what's going on, because I got enough people on that set telling me, Al Ruddy basically took over the whole project. Forget about Bobby Evans, all his... Nobody nobody did anything else but Al Ruddy in this movie. I love it. That's so funny. I mean, it's, he's going to well, get... It, okay, I'm sorry. No, no, go, no keep going with what you're saying. No, oh, he's going to get a lot of heat from this because, you know, there's still people around. Gray Fredericks and Stanley Jack. I mean, there was a lot of people involved in this. Yeah. But now it's the Al Ruddy show. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, you know, Miles Teller, who's a very talented actor, is playing Al Ruddy. Is, uh, he's a great actor. He's in the new Top Gun. He was also in a really big movie, Whiplash, 
who's a young, he's like a 35 year old, really talented actors playing him. So it's going to be great. Uh, who else is, uh, we have Justin Chambers who was on, uh, who was on that show. Um, uh, what was the show called? Uh, the uh, procedural show, uh, Grey's Anatomy, who's playing Marlon Brando. And I swear to God, he looks so good. He looks like Marlon Brando and he's doing an incredible job. Gianni Rabisi's in it. So it's a great cast. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really fun to, you know, all the old outfits in the 1970s. If only I could snap my, I was born in the wrong era. I mean, I, I, I built a, a mid-century house right by where Gianni Russo and Marlon Brando used to live right in the Truesdale. I have a mid-century cool house and it's all 70s style. So I was in the wrong era. So this was easy for me. It wasn't really acting. That's mm. wild. That's great, man. That's, we're going to have a lot of fun when you leave the show now. <laughs> you gave us a lot to talk about to fill in. <laughs> well, I always just love all your stories. And, you know, I was first introduced to you with the story with the uh, when you were uh, uh, fighting um, uh, a polio and you had to uh, uh, kill the guy that was inside the hospital. Oh, yeah. And the then pedophile. I just thought you all your Vegas stories and just all the people and then getting into the Godfather. I mean, God, I mean, what a, and then everything after that, and I watched all your interviews uh, right after the Godfather, when you started producing and funny enough, I studied Muay Thai. My Muay Thai coach was in your uh, movie, uh, Pacific Coast Highway, PCH. Oh, wow. Yeah. Ernie Reyes Jr. Do you remember him? Not he was really. No. No. He was a teenage uh, ninja turtle, but he remembers you. Yeah, yeah. That that was I wrote. I wrote and produced that. I know it was a great cast too. In fact, yeah, uh, now, now that you're reminding me, uh, Denise Richards still owes me another film. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, though. I didn't know you knew yeah. that that much about me. Yeah. I, well, then I, I also I listened. I, I'm not a big fan of reading, so I listened to the whole Hollywood Godfather. Your whole story. I watched tons of interviews on you, and and you know one of my favorite stories was is when you got the movie and uh, you showed up to the read through, the cold read, and you were just dressed all fly, pulled up in like a Bentley or a Rolls Royce, yeah. and you're like, what the? And you met all the actors, and you were like, God, they look like bums. They look like gardeners. And then you meet Marlon Brando, and on the call sheet it says it says, don't look him in the eyes. And then Marlon Brando's like, what the fuck? This guy's not an actor and he's going to play me? Are you fucking kidding me? And then he tells Coppola, this is the guy that's going to uh, date my daughter. And this is the guy that's going to have my son killed. And you basically grab Marlon Brando by the neck and said, come to the side here. And go, dude, if you fuck this up for me, I already told the boys. And, the, and if I don't get this part, I'm going to basically cut out your neck. Or, or cut out your heart. Yeah, I said that. I, I was going to suck on his heart, I told him. <laughs> and he thought I was acting. <laughs> wow, that's then, So you had a lot of stuff to work from. <laughs> Pity you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I, I, listen I'm never going to be able to play you. But, you know, I think what I picked up from you is that you love life. You love to have a great time. You love to go on journeys and you laugh a lot and you have fun. That's all and I you do. Know, so, and so, and so 
that's what I really took away from it. You know, I didn't have that much time to prepare. It was literally like within a week or two, they were like, okay, now you're going on set because they couldn't find the guy. And, uh, you know, I, I crammed, and, but I already knew about you. So that was the good thing. And I went back to the Godfather, but it's not the, it's the make, it's the behind the scenes right. of the making of the Godfather. Right, right. So it was, you know, so I had a great time and it's an honor playing you and, and you have well, my my privilege to have you do it because at least you at least you know something about me, and uh, all I'm hearing about is you know that as I said earlier, it's mostly about Al Ruddy and how he created this whole thing. But uh, how did the fight scene go? So they actually picked it up. They picked it up after the fight scene, so it shows. But it's actually watching so you hear the whole fight scene and you hear them talking about and you're watching Al Ruddy and all the producers in Coppola talking about it and then me afterwards getting kind of wheeled away into the ambulance and then it takes <laughs> over from there and it takes over with uh Betty and I now I don't know how much I'm allowed to reveal I'm sure I signed oh, no, don't go, don't give up anything oh, but, but it, it's so it's the making up because I had you know when I was going on to when I got the film I'm like oh I'm gonna get to do the whole fight scene well of course Hollywood puts their spin on it and comes up with creative ways and I'm sure budget too has something to do with it but uh it was just listen man it was it was so fun to do and, and you know being able to play you listen I'm a character and you're a character and we have so many things in common I mean you got married at the Beverly Hills Hotel the Beverly Hills Hotel is right by my house. I eat there all the time, and it's a very special place to me. You lived right up on Mulholland. I love Mulholland. Mulholland Drive is one of my oh, favorite yeah, places. Oh, yeah, my God. Oh, so you're right I there. I, I was, know, in, I I was in the Polo Lounge every day. That's when Waleed, yeah. Waleed was the maitre d'. He loved me, man. Forget it. Uh, well, and then I also drive by Marlon Brando's property, where I know you got to spend right. a lot of time. Yeah. So I know you have a big, and you live right on Elm Drive. And, uh, you know, I know you have a, there's a big piece of you when you came out here. So I could relate and I feel you and I feel your spirit. Yeah, I was right on the corner of Elm and Sunset. That yeah. was a great house. Well, well, I'm on the corner of Hillcrest and Sunset, about four blocks away from you. I know right where you are. My God, forget about it. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Dean Martin lived right up the hill from you. Yeah, Dean Martin. Frank Sinatra, yeah. I mean, all the Elvis lived on my street. So you I made stopped. a lot of money. <laughs> Listen, I've been blessed. You know, I, I came from nothing and I worked my ass off and, uh, and uh, I made some right decisions. And, you know, listen, man, I'm looking at my sign right here in front of me. You can't see it, but I have a neon sign. This is my office on Sunset Strip. I'm right on Sunset in San Vicente, Caddy Corner from the Whiskey A Go-Go. And I'm looking at the sign that says real estate is king. You know, That's so I right. got lucky to, uh, you know, so I basically legitimized it. But I always thought of myself as a wise guy, but doing real estate pops. And I didn't have to spend time in prison. <laughs> Nor did I. Thank when, when. God. <laughs> Our final selection for the evening is from season five, episode 98. An interview with one of our favorite guests, Henry Bombastic Bushkin. I know, I, I know it well. I, I had a run-in with Shapiro, a major. I almost threw him out the window at, at, uh, at I did, I swear to God. Well, now you're 
I don't know where I get that from, but... Uh, no, yeah. you're not, but I, Henry, you, you know him well. So uh, a- after I had an incident in my club, Steve Wynn calls me, and they were worried I gonna, I'm going to need a good attorney. What so, year? In 89. Uh, uh, yeah, the incident was you shot somebody. That's a hell of yeah, an incident. I what killed a guy, but anyway. <laughs> that was the incident to which he refers. Right. So the bottom line, Steve lends me his plane. Is you got to be at the airport eight o'clock. He's going to see you nine thirty at the office at Century Tower, the new tower he moved into. So I get there and he's sitting at a plexiglass desk, and he's he's shooing me down like he's talking, like sit down, you know. And I didn't want to come to begin with. A half hour goes by. I'm listening to this guy talk to everybody but me. So I go over and I hang up the phone on him. And you can, you know his arrogance. And he started yelling at me. I grabbed him. I said, let me just tell you something. I didn't want to be here to begin with. They told me to come. I'm here. I don't know who you are, but you're not paying any attention to me. And I'll throw you out this window. Don't get smart with me. And that's my relationship with Robert Shapiro. But this show's not about you, him or you or me. I mean, it's about you, not us, I mean, Shapiro. I got involved to, in effect, to handle his divorce from wife number two. Okay. And, and at the time, they were both drinking heavily, and he was forever screwing around. And she was not forever screwing around, but she had a separate apartment, as it turns out, and she was having an affair with somebody. And so it was almost tit for tat, if you know what I mean. It right, was like... Right. He wasn't being a very good guy. She wasn't being a very good wife. And and they were drinking. Okay? And, they, and they were battling. Okay, And she gave him just a miserable time of it. Uh, and and yet he did the show every night. I, I, I couldn't figure out how he did it when his day was so miserable. But I think his devotion... To the crowd. Well, it's a true show business. He's a showman. That's it, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. So I think, Pat, that's my answer. I think it's his devotion to the craft that really, uh, you know, there are times he could be a really good guy, and there could be times when he'd be a real asshole. And, uh, but I met him in 1970, right? Uh, the book, the book that I'm writing, starts in 1943 when I joined the Navy, and it ends in effect 1969 okay, when my other book begins. This ends where my book, the other book begins, but it became far less interesting as a biography of Carson from 1943 to 1969 than it was to say, no, that's not enough. It's, it may be good, but it's just not enough. And what makes it enough is to make it a real intriguing series where you have great characters, okay? And you have great conflict, but it's television and showbiz versus the ad agency. When he was in front of a camera, he made it look so effortless. It just, it, it just like he was giving it no thought that it was him he was a pro yeah but you know 
I know and, and very few others know. I mean, I'm writing about it, but when when he went into the Navy, he was 17 years old. Okay, he graduated high school. He enlisted in the Navy. He's going to become a pilot, and and the first place they send him is to Columbia University in New York. <laughs> right? That's the first place they send him, and and he arrives with 200 in effect midshipmen because this is the war right and these these are all guys who are going to be either in the marines or in the navy and carson was going to be a, a navy pilot okay and in 1943 he gets involved in some card games pat in little italy in 1943 i love it 17 years old in the Ravenici club Okay. Now I don't know if you know that club. I don't. That was that was, that was like the head of uh, the 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 Gambino was it the Gambino family, sweetheart? I forget. But it was a major it was a major uh, mafia hangout. Okay, where Carson was playing cards at seventeen because he was so good at cards. Okay. Well, he was a magician. That's why. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he was. Yeah. Oh, I know he was. No, I know a lot about that. But, but in the David Milch script, the Carson series that's coming out, based on my book, in the first episode, Milch has him involved in a big-time card game, you know, <clears throat> with some of your Italian cousins, Johnny. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, circa 1970 in a big-time game, and, and Carson wipes them out and sort of takes digs at them. And then uh, two days later, they, they, they catch up with him and beat the shit out of him because he insulted them. <laughs> Sounds right to me. <laughs> I'm surprised they waited two days. So many memories, and we still have so much to share with you guys, but that will have to wait. So thank you for joining us this week, and we'll see you next time on The Hollywood Godfather. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. Want to ask us a question for the mailbag? We love hearing from our fans, so submit your questions online at hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com or you can give us a call at 646-776-3038 and leave a message. Contact us anytime with your questions about past or future shows, your favorite celebrity or anything you'd like to know and who knows, your question may even make it on the air. Remember to follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at Hollywood Godfather and at Real Johnny Russo. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review with your podcast provider or your video streaming service. We'll be back next week with another exciting show and who knows who we may have on the show. If you don't want to miss out on an episode, remember to subscribe. Until next time. My life's like scenes out of a movie. I'm the Hollywood Godfather, truly. I got stories with them all. You know, celebrities, world leaders, icons. Who knows what's next for me? I'll never get too old to have a little fun. Come on, I'm Gianni Russo. A genuine one of a kind. What a ride it's been, this life of mine. And I ain't done yet. I'll be back until next time. And that was that.
17 It was a very good year It was a very good year For small town girls And soft summer nights We'd hide from the light On the village green When I was 17 I didn't mind 